I know the Russians. Why don't you just get a mobster in London with a 22 and put a bullet in the back of his head? Or why use the heart you attack drug, poke him with an umbrella like the Bulgarians did. So do you think there's any truth in the idea that COVID somehow was engineered, maybe intentionally released? Say, hey, why lungs were bombing? Let's bomb the Chinese embassy. This is Global Beacon with General Wesley K. Clark. I'm Wes Clark, retired U.S. Army General. My guest today is uh, is Bob Baer. Well, he's a, he's retired from the Central Intelligence Agency. I want to ask you, Bob, what exactly did you do? Were you like a, a trench coat guy in secret meetings, or were you the guy with the looking at maps or in the headquarters? Where were you, and what happened? I was a, what's called a case officer. And, you know, on TV, they're called operatives. And I was always overseas. I spent all the time I could. And, um, and mostly, rather than doing Cold War stuff, I was in the Middle East. I was in Beirut. Uh, I was in Iraq, um, in the Sudan during the Civil War. Are you speak Arabic? I speak Arabic. CIA sent me a couple of years to Arabic. Uh, and then I was put on a consular line in Damascus where I had to speak Arabic for eight hours a day. And wow. your Arabic tends to get better. At the same time, I was running uh, agents in Damascus and I'd go out in the middle of the night, pick them up in a car. Or they'd pick me up. There was dangerous. Driver, yeah, we'd drive you around. Shadowed and, by uh, hostile intelligence agencies. Uh, yeah. Well, you know what we did? I mean, we, we had to, we did, we used our tradecraft. And that was you spent a couple hours looking for surveillance. And then when you thought you had none, you went provocative. And that meant in Damascus doing like 100 miles an hour in your car, um, anybody behind you clearly was surveillance. And then you picked your guy up and met him. So you were one of the real leaders in the agency and had the experience that when the war on terror broke out, you already knew the region and you knew many of the actors in that. Well, General Clark, it just took me forever to learn the Middle East. I mean, I just couldn't figure out who these people were, all these Palestinian groups, all the groups in Lebanon. So it was like a, a full-time graduate study, learning about all these people and then, and then meeting agents in Arabic. And finally, it was like throwing spaghetti against the wall. I started sure. to learn stuff and, and recruited people in terrorist groups. It, it's For instance, the only guys way, you know, it's the only way you can't learn it at Harvard in a course on Middle Eastern studies. You have to be in the region talking to people, don't you? Absolutely, you know, later I was in Moscow and Central Asia, Soviet, and, and I did the Russian stuff because I didn't speak good Russian, just went right over my head and, and, and I missed so much, but knowing the language, living with the people, going to mosques, going to church, all my friends were Arabs, you start to understand. So now that President Trump, we think he's gonna be leaving office, and uh, I know you're in touch with a lot of your old colleagues and everything. Um, how's the CIA held up during all this? This has been really tough four years, hasn't it? It's been a horrible four years for the CIA. Uh, the years before even the Obama administration weren't good for it because all of our officers were either in Baghdad or Kabul. They, they were limited to a compound. They couldn't get out. They were fighting this futile war on terror. Um, so you have a whole generation of people at the CIA ha who haven't really run an agent or recruited them. And this really goes back to 2003, the invasion of Iraq, it started to come apart, uh, where the CIA just became less of a player. And so how is the agency today? Is the agency healthy? I mean, you know, from the military side of things, we've reoriented away from the war on terror to some extent. And we're worried about great power competition. Is the agency able to handle that? Frankly, no. The agency is doing terrible in Moscow. It's doing terrible in Beijing. You, you really can't operate in Beijing because of CCTV cameras, uh, you know, iPhones, everything. It's, you, know, you, you cannot walk through the streets of Beijing and not be picked up by the secret police and they know who you are. So it's, it's increasingly difficult for the CIA to operate overseas. And you know, add to that the language problem and the rest of it, and there's great parts of the world, we don't know what's going on. 
So Americans should be concerned. But we've always been concerned about the intelligence system. I mean, we've had intelligence failures before, and, um, and we've had areas of the world we didn't really understand. So um, as you look at it today, how do, you, how do you see the agency, how should it adapt? Should we be more technical? Or are we still going to need guys like you, case officers out there? We're, General Clark, we're going to need both. There's nothing like the National Security Agency to keep the intelligence agencies honest, intercepts people on the phone, diplomatic codes. It, it, it's sort of a check on our intelligence, but we really need to get out and deal with some very nasty people, for instance. Right now, we can't is the Russian mob. Because let's not forget that Russia is a police state managed by, the economy is managed by the mafia. So, I mean, you, you, we have to find people that we can pick up and run into the mafia and figure out how to run them reliably. That's a tough mission. That's a really <laughs> tough mission, but it helps because we've got so many people from Russia and China and other countries that live here. So the idea would be to get loyal Americans who have native language fluency and a love for this country and then be able to take advantage, right? It, well, that's, that's absolutely true. Now, the one problem with taking people that have family in one of these hostile countries is their loyalties. There's a thing called the long tail where they get recruited. But if you just give these people secret clearances, you don't, they don't need to go to the top of the CIA or DIA, but they just need to be out there with a lot of money, uh, ability to act independently, and they're not too risky. I mean, look at this attack in, in, in Iran against uh, Fakhrizadeh, the nuclear chief. That was, as you and I both know, that was not done by Israelis with blue eyes. It was done by Iranians who live on the ground. They're proxies. Uh, they, they managed to apparently put this car with a machine gun run, you know, operated by a satellite, according to the Iranians, and they got away with this, but this is the Israelis using proxies to do their dirty work. And we're gonna to have to figure out what they're doing and do the same thing. They seem to have a reputation for uh, doing it a lot more effectively than we have in the past. And we've tended to rely more on the technical means, I guess. Um, but then the Israelis have had their problems too. I recall there was a story about um, a mix up in Dubai in a hotel where <laughs> it was totally compromised operation, right? Oh, it was a clown show. It was a bunch of Israelis flew in. We're going to do this. We're going to kill this guy, lock the door like he, he died of natural causes and climb out the window. It was a clown show. But they were using case officers from Mossad as opposed to locals. And if you can find a group of locals to tell you what's going on, you're, you're, you're a lot safer. And, you know, this for the Israelis is very much a hybrid plus their intercept capability is, is absolutely fantastic. Now their advantage is they live in a very bad neighborhood, so they have to do this day yeah. in and day out. So Bob, you know, you were talking about um, people that we would you know, bring on and it might be um, native language fluency, but we've tried this in the past with some people, we've had some problems with it. Wasn't there recently a CIA uh, agent who had just uh, convicted of selling out to China. And uh, there was a release of a bunch of names. We got a bunch of people, I guess, eliminated in China, right? Who were working oh, for us. Yeah, if you remember Rick Ames, it was the equivalent of this and we lost all of our agents. And there was, it wasn't just right. one, there were three or four. Yep. Um, that's the problem with counterintelligence. How do you spot these people in your organization and move them out of sensitive jobs to ones you don't really care about. Right. Uh, that's hard to do. And it's, it's hard to do to pick up on these people because we are an open society and we just do not want the FBI, for instance, listening to everybody's phones. Everybody becomes a suspect like happens in China and Russia. So that's a terrible uh, you know, balancing act, uh, but it can be done. And it's, and it's, and it's on need to know that if you're running an operation in Beijing, there are three people that know about it, know the name, know the case. They're absolutely, totally reliable. You know who they are, no personal problems, no money problems, and you're a lot likely to get away with this. Now with Rick Ames, the famous spy in the CIA that gave up all the Russian agents, he was a drunk and he had all sorts of other problems. 
he should have never been in a job like that. And that's the kind of lesson we got to, you know, there, uh, General Clark, you know, in the government, same way with the military, you're always going to have a handful of losers. You just can't put them in charge of a division. You know, the difference, the difference, you know, in the military and the agency is I think there's a lot more individualism in the agency. At least that's what I read about it from the outside is because of the compartmentation of the intelligence system, uh, because you, you don't necessarily want to talk to the guy sitting in the next in the next cubicle about your agent. Lots of people sort of flow in and out of this. They have a lot of secrets. Um, there's a funding issue. There's a who's going to support this operation. This was my idea, not your idea. And a lot of sharp elbows. At least that's what I get you know, circumstantially from people who've been associated with the agency. I think the military is it's much more cohesive. Uh, and another thing in the military is, of course, most of us don't we never touched money. Yeah. Money was something that was, it was just on an accounting sheet. I mean, you never got your hands on anything. You never paid anybody. You never took any money and you never exposed to anybody who might try to tempt you. So I think the counterintelligence problems for the agency are far, they're, they're a totally different caliber. But I know when I was in, uh, in NATO and we were, um, we were uh, going after the Serb targets in Kosovo, the pilots would say, we're flying toward a bridge and somebody says, I, I can see the I can see the Serb air defense units. They're, they're driving toward the, the bridge that we're about to strike. Someone has told them the targets. Yeah. And I always wondered whether that was uh, Hansen, who had somehow given away our security, our secret net, or somehow somebody from associated with Ames was in there. Um, we found out the French were releasing some data, but um, we know that that sensitive intelligence is really hard to protect, and um, that's why that's why we have to really work this as we're going forward with the agency. Yeah. You know, oh, by the way, you know when the officers I worked with, the best ones had spent four or five years in the military. Uh, they were more settled. They were more mature. Uh, they understood the bureaucracy and they had generally no fantasies. A lot of people that come into the CIA at 20, 22, 23 or whatever, very young age are, just aren't, aren't ready for it. You know, yep. you, you gotta hit it about 30, you have to have been in the military, uh, maybe a combat unit, maybe not. But at the end of the day, uh, the people from the military were much more reliable and, and did better at the CIA. One of the things that's changed in the agency too, as I understand it is, the direct action component has been expanded enormously. Under George Tenet, the agency set up squads. They basically could, they worked hand in hand with our own special operations forces. Maybe they took their own, uh, did some other operations we don't know about. Maybe cross border into Pakistan. We, we don't know about all these things. Maybe someday we'll hear about them. But my impression is we've added to the agency a lot more, let's say shooters, than we used to have uh, during the Cold War. Is that is that a fair other than oh, Vietnam? Uh, yeah, absolutely. When I when I was in the agency, special operations group was was more of a logistics group. Very rarely did they carry a weapon, and it was mainly for security, for backup security. When I was in Iraq, we had a couple of guys. But now what they've done is taken a lot of these assaulters from JSOC and brought him across. And there's one just killed in Somalia, an ex-SEAL. And it's really a, a military component. But this, for us in the agency, started in, in Bosnia, where we became second fiddle to the military. I mean, they were, they were looking for targets. Yep. Uh, and we weren't doing very well. I I, yep. When I was there, we decided, let's go take a look at Pali and see what we can find out. And <laughs> what a disaster that was. No. Those people did not like us in Polly. No, it's been 25 years. I was just <laughs> on Bosnian television um, talking about the Dayton Peace Accord. But of course, we had the, uh, the mission of capturing these persons indicted for war crimes, the people we call Pifwicks. Um, so you and I might have crossed paths in some way during that time. Oh, it was a we tough probably, mission. <laughs> it was a really tough mission. Um, well, I can tell you, I failed at it. I was running a counterterrorism unit there and Getting into Polly was just impossible. I mean, well, it was it was anywhere. Talk to us, <laughs> but you know, we learned our lessons. the The license plates in Bosnia were all 
uh, they were like regional or local license plates. One of, our, one of the operations I remember had two guys sitting in a car with Sarajevo license plates in a little village in Bosnia on a stakeout. <laughs> like they were in New York City. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Those guys worked for me. <laughs> I, I told them, I said, though, I know that's Kira was the one who got shot. She got around in the back. And because you're exactly right, that. because the Sarajevo plates. Yeah. But, um, you know, but who would have known if you don't know the area that just because you had a certain, you know, they would shoot a woman in the back. Um, do you remember that the Italians saved him? Yes, but we never, that, that episode, it never got, it never, uh, it never became public that I knew of. And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things about this. You know, the work we did in Bosnia together, the, the military and the agency, that really paved the way for everything that followed later. We, we applied the same model in Kosovo. And then when we went into Iraq, um, it became, uh, you know, a much tougher, larger mission with strike teams and so forth. But it was the same basic idea of synthesizing information and, and working the details. And um, it was um, our learning to do what we dismissively called police actions. So yeah. that was one phase, but we're entering, Bob, we're in a different phase. And I know you're following these events very closely. Who do you see as the greatest challenge for the United States? Is it China or Russia today? I would say it's China simply because they are, they are so aggressive right now. We saw what they did in India the last couple of months. They're crossing these lines that were, were fairly set. Uh, in the Himalayas, you see the South China Sea, uh, you see the Chinese playing a game with North Korea. I mean, it, for me, it's, it was quite fantastic. When I was in Central Asia, we used to look into Lop Nor and watch them test nuclear weapons, like the W88, this miniaturized right. nuclear bomb. Right. And, and I remember, you know, Los Alamos saying, wait a minute, that's our design, the W88. So what happens is the Chinese steal our technology, develop it for their own. And then we've, over the last 10 years, have been watching the signature of North Korean nuclear weapons and they're Chinese. So, you know, and what the Chinese are doing is giving the North Koreans nukes to give us a hard time, give us something to focus on. It's a stick in our eye and they know they can control it. So it's the Chinese that really and it's, it's the Han Chinese. It's because look what they're doing with the concentration camps and what they've done to Tibet. I mean, they've always been attempting to destroy Tibet as a culture, but now they're doing it to Chinese Muslims, the Uyghurs. I mean, I think it's just fantastic that they've got these gigantic camps. Um, and it's, it's a police state like none it's other. It's really different, isn't it? I remember in the 90s, um, well, I, I was one of the first military guys um, to go back into China. We went with the War College in uh, 1983, and we had just established mill-to-mill -mill contacts then. And um, we were shown all over China, and uh, we, were, we were treated pretty well. I mean, they were still at that time a little nervous about the Soviets and their intentions. By 1988, it had changed. I was there in 2005, and I remember one of the men who was President Hu's youth advisor said to me, he said, uh, China is a great power now, and it will never be humiliated by its neighbors. He said, but you were, you Americans, you were not the ones who humiliated us. And uh, we, we Chinese know that you were best friends with Britain, and Britain gave you leadership of the world. China wants to be best friends with America, so you will give us leadership of the world. And that was 2005, and so much has changed since then. But um, if you told that to Americans, then they laughed. <laughs> yeah. America's gonna give up leadership of the world to China. Now, as you're indicating, it's a very serious challenge, isn't it? Well, there's so much, in so many ways, there's so much advance, like on global warming and solar power and their, their recognition of how the environment's changing. And they, they are making at least noises about doing something about it. And of course, economically, 
they've come out of COVID-19 much better than we did. They simply shut it down. And then they're all over it with, with contract tracing. It's something we as a society are, are reluctant to do, give up our, our, what our personal freedoms are to the state, but they can. So, I mean, they are going into a, we're going into a very turbulent period right now, and it's just not Donald Trump. No, it's a really dangerous period, isn't it? Because even on the on the on the bio side, of course, um, there was a worldwide convention signed against biological weapons back in the 70s, because we used to test some of these weapons out in Utah and places like that. We had them. We gave them up. We discovered a man uh, who had defected from Russia um, from bio preparat in the 19 early 1990s. Um, he came out to the West. He explained the Russians never gave up on it. They were trying to militarize uh, Marburg and Ebola at that point and working on it. We have to assume the Chinese also must have such a program. And of course, there have been all these rumors about COVID. So do you think there's any truth in the idea that COVID somehow was engineered, maybe intentionally released? Well, you know what bothers me more is we don't know that there hasn't been an open investigation. If the, if the Chinese were playing with a straight bat, they would let WHO in there, they would let us in there, uh, CDC, everybody, and say, all right, here's, what, here's where we think it came from, we need your help. And this should, this should be you know, open source stuff. We should know exactly how it started, where it started. We should know the RNA sequence of this thing and they're, and they're covering it up and that's what's scarier. And it's what we don't know that always scares me and that we're not allowed inside, you know, mm -hmm. academia, CIA, Department of Defense. We have no idea what's going on up there. And the Chinese are keeping us out. And they are certainly perfectly capable of it, of, of, of creating these weapons, just as the Russians are. I mean, we, by the way, we still don't know why Putin used Novichok to attempt to murder that that, right. that GRU officer in Salisbury. I mean, yep. I know the Russians. Why don't you just get a mobster in London with a 22 and put a bullet in the back of his head? Or Why use would a heart attack not... drug, poke him with an umbrella like the Bulgarians did. In, in, or blame, yeah. But why do you want the world to know that you're going to use weapons of mass destruction in Western Europe? Uh, I think that's scary. There's a strategic reason you're suggesting, right? Because I think it's the scare, it's scare, the hell out, scare the hell out of the Russians and also tell us we're going to do what we want to do and there's That's nothing right. you can do. Oh, it's an expression of statecraft power. And if you were looking at it from the Chinese perspective, you know, in 1999, after the Kosovo operation, two Chinese colonels wrote a book called Unrestricted Warfare. It took off from what we did in Kosovo where we took out the electrical grid. But... There's no holds barred as far as China is concerned, if it ever no. comes to it. No holds barred. And remember, we had the wrong coordinates for the Chinese embassy in Belgrade and hit it <laughs> the way the Chinese thinks that that was purpose on purpose. It wasn't some dummy at the CIA who got the wrong place. So they're looking at it. Bob, I've answered that question repeatedly every time I go to China. Now, my last trip to China was in uh, was four years ago in 2016. It was not a friendly question that was asked again. Of course, it was a mistake. We, the Americans, we don't do things like that. We're not sly, cunning, clever killers, even though it was the Chinese who were the principal source of intelligence provided to the Serbs during this period. And it just so happened the 2,000 pound bomb hit right on the section of the embassy that was in the process of transferring intelligence. And the young people that were killed were intelligence officers. If you were the Chinese, you would believe it was done on purpose. It yeah. wasn't. I, we, I know no. it was, and I know, I, I, I could not imagine anybody in the White House Situation Room sitting down, say, hey, why long as we're bombing, let's bomb the Chinese embassy. Uh, never, you'd, no you'd way. Be thrown, you'd be thrown out into the, into the streets so of fast, course. Pennsylvania Avenue, and of you'd course. be gone forever. I had the target, I had the picture of the target and it showed warehouses out back. And it was announced as a Yugoslav arms export agency. General Shelton was with me that day. He was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We took it to the 
to the National Security Council. We handed them the paper. They looked at it and said, okay, you know, I mean, there was, it was not an effort. And yet, you know, these things get misinterpreted. And if you were, if you're in China today and you're looking at the perfidious United States and you think, hmm, look at what COVID has done to the United States compared to what it did to China. This is a vulnerable society. This is the perfect way to take them down and keep them down. Just continuous releases of something maybe four times stronger than influenza. Yeah. And well, well, look at it from their point. be a real challenge. No, but just the, hypothetically, look at it from their point. If you think the United States is an existential threat and is going to destroy your regime and they're paranoid to enough to believe that, you know a nuclear exchange is not going to do anybody any good. I'm thinking talking hypothetically, but you know enough about COVID that you could release this and they, they know more of it. And it's, that's the kind of suspicion that, that's driving a wedge between these two countries. And there's going to become a time where, you know, the way things are going, especially with this president, that people will truly believe it's a conspiracy um, and that we have to right, right a, a great wrong. That's what worries me about this country is that all these people think the vote was thrown and they don't understand that, that nobody in this country could pull off a conspiracy like that. I mean, like, it, like it, it's, Trump was it's blaming- unbelievable. It's unbelievable to most of us. But, you know, if you get alternate news, you, you see it differently. You know, the thing is, Bob, all foreign policy, as you know, is driven by domestic politics. That's where it comes from. And I look at China and I wonder, maybe you know the answer to this, but how stable is President Xi's ironclad control on China? What I hear is that he's got some people who they like the system of five years of leadership better than going back to the cult of personality era. First of all, we don't know how unstable it is, but I tell you, if I were in the CIA right now, I would be, have a disinformation campaign that their generals, the PLA, um, that are ready to overthrow the government. I mean, I mean, we should be doing the same thing the Russians did to us in 2016 is so disinformation. If that's the game they want to play, we can play it too. Um, and we simply don't know if there is a general with a division close to Beijing who could move on this guy. It will come as a surprise to us, but it's always possible. You know, it's a real dilemma though for, for democratic society like ours. We consider ourselves, you know, well, next to the next to the Catholic church. I mean, we're pretty holy as a society. We believe, we believe we treat people well around the world. We believe there's something special about democracy. And yet here's a, we, we probably do take covert actions just by our existence. We are an existential threat to these autocratic regimes. Our, I was going back and forth to, to Ukraine in 2014, 2015 a lot. And the European Union kept saying, you Ukrainians must end corruption. You must have a clean, open society. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> you don't want to cause a problem with Putin, but this is the greatest challenge that Putin would face. Not sending javelin missiles to be stored in the back uh, in the far western side of Ukraine, but actually a Ukraine that's a functioning, transparent, open society, democratic values. Oh, that is, a, that is an existential threat. And I always look at it, democracies, it's like a, it is like a virus. I mean, young people come here, they see America... They see McDonald's and Burger King. They see upscale restaurants. They see the fashion, the movies, the sports, the homes with the lawns, the two and three car families. And they think, why can't my country be like that? And they talk to their fellow college students or young business and people just talk, 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 talk. Nobody's worried that somebody's listening to them. They say anything they want. They think, why can't we do that in my country? And so... We're an infectious source. We're a source of, of infection for these autocracies around the world. And I, well, you know, that reminds me, 
Oh, I totally agree. I mean, the, the fact that Arizona has certified the vote and that there's all these Republicans at the state level going against the president is saying, hey, look, we are not an autocracy. Right. We have a president that would like to be an autocrat, but he's getting voted down. He's getting thrown out of courts. And this is the way a vibrant society works. And even with all the craziness, we can tolerate it. But the fact is, I know everybody was worried, no one's out in the street with guns. Yep. Now, yep. People talked about it, but you know, there's been no violence. No. And I think that's a, that's a great victory. And I think eventually the far right will learn to live with Biden. Uh, whether he does well or badly, they'll learn to live with him. And you're absolutely right. That's our greatest propaganda. It's really, it's really hard. For, it's been a really hard transition for us um, to recognize that there's a revanchist Russia today. We really believe that Russian, Russia had a chance for democracy and, and somehow it slipped away. Now, oh, I've, I've you, I believed it. But we know, General, we don't even know where Putin came from. I mean, I, well, I'm writing a book on this. And, you know, when he no. was in St. Petersburg, yeah. we don't know what part of the KGB he was with. It was Leningrad at the time. Was that the fifth chief directorate, which clamped down on dissidents, was the second, their FBI. Right. We don't know anything about him. We don't know who brought him out of St. Petersburg to the Kremlin. And until this day, we don't know why Yeltsin resigned and this guy walked into power. I mean, no, no one who he was. I mean, for me, that's just astounding that we have a leader. And we also don't know that in 1999 that he didn't blow up those three apartment buildings in order well, everybody to believes power. We just don't know. Well, everybody believes that he did. And I believe oh, it. In the, in the third or fourth apartment building, I forget which one, didn't get blown up. By that time, all the occupants were looking, said, these Chechens, they must gonna, they're going to bomb these apartments. And I said, look, here's the explosives in our own apartment. And um, according to the press reports, as you probably recall, the police were called. They said, oh, yes, these are explosives, but uh, they were here just as a test of your alertness. And I, I so, know, but, but generally, we know who burned down the Reichstag in 1933. It was Nazis. You've got names not. for all. It's all proof. And, yeah. But in Russia, the, the truth just sort of disappears. You know, you sort of know what's going on, but no one ever gets to the bottom of it. Well, my, my experience in Eastern Europe, and I've done a lot of business over there as a civilian, is that whereas in the United States, we make fun of conspiracy theories. In, in Eastern Europe, most of the conspiracy theories are true. I know. And, you know, in every country, there's Russian illegal money. And uh, everywhere Gazprom has a pumping station, money changes hands. Politicians are bought. This is, as you were saying a few minutes ago, this is a mafia-controlled state. But at the top of the mafia, there are enough tough guys working for the intelligence agencies that they direct, point, and discipline the mafia if necessary. It's, um, it's the old rule that I learned um, listening to President Milosevic. He was a dictator, but he always used the law. He called it technology. He said, we will use technology. So he didn't send thugs in to sort of beat people up. He sent the tax police in to say, you haven't paid your taxes and we will take your business. <laughs> it was far more effective. Wasn't Milosevic a banker originally? He certainly was, and he was a, and I'll tell you something, Bob, he was one of the, um, he was a really brilliant intellect. He spoke almost flawless English. He just couldn't put the indefinite articles in front of the, in front of the vowel of nouns. But, but other than that, he had perfect comprehension. He did, he lived in New York. He had friends in the United States. There is still in the United States a lot of very wonderful Serbian Americans who are proud of their heritage. And, and they saw, you know, the end of this dictatorship. And many of these people rallied to Slobodan Milosevic. And yet um, he was um, a nationalist, populist. He was a war criminal. Yeah. I oh, testified. He was then. But, but I learned from him. I spent hundreds, hundreds of hours listening to Milosevic and studying how he operated. He was um, a good forerunner for Putin, actually. I mean, I think Putin maybe has the advantage of the nuclear weapons and the USSRs 
arsenal before him, but um, they had similar, they have similar behavior standards. Now, I want to ask you a question. You brought up our president. Do you, do you think there was anything to the Russian business that President Trump keeps saying it's a hoax? Was there really anything there? Well, let me tell you what the Russians tell me, and these guys are in the Kremlin now. Yeah. And they they are saying openly to me, and they know who I am, I'm, I'm a bit public, is look, we, we bought the guy uh, in the 80s. We, um, and you, today or yesterday, Felix Sater, his business partner, a, a person I know, by the way, um, they're going to let this case go forward that, that Russian money was laundered through Trump properties. And I think they knew who Trump was. They knew he was a disruptive force and they helped them where they could. Um, but more than anything, the Russians have let it be known that they did help and they didn't bother hiding these servers in Moscow um, and the rest of it, just like the Novichok and Salisbury and they use this to disrupt our political system, to delegitimize de it. And, and they've done a wonderful job and it's been quite open. I mean, they had this, this, this building in St. Petersburg, was, it was, everybody knew what it was and the people have come out and are allowed to talk about it. Uh, the Russians know exactly what they're doing. I have a lot of admiration for their abilities to get away with uh, espionage, covert action and the rest of it. Yep. And they looked at this guy as the KGB people I talked to, they called him, um, it, it's, like, it's like an unwitting asset. Um, it's, a yeah. trusted, yeah. it's a trusted car. He's an unwitting agent. Yeah. He's and an, and they, could, they could manipulate him. And just all sorts of Russian money went through and they could cause him serious problems if they could connect Deutsche Bank money going into his business and the rest of it. And, you know, they never looked at him in the 80s as a potential agent for, for classified intelligence, but he was like Armand Hammer. He was, hey, this guy's very useful. And if, if anybody remembers Armand Hammer between oh, yeah. besides the two of us, um, he <laughs> well, was extremely- I mean, we have to remember, we can't talk about Armand Hammer and slide rules and stuff like that. We'll get too dated, Bob. But the, I truth, know. Is, the truth is, the Russians don't change. I remember in- going to Ukraine a few years ago. And after um, they annexed Crimea, they put out statements and my Ukrainian friends says, look, this is exactly like the, the, the Russian statement is exactly the same thing they put out in 1939 when they annexed half of Poland under the Molenkov-Ribbentrop Pact. It's the same, they just pull out the file and they copy the same lines of analysis. They know us. I think it was Khrushchev who told Kennedy, maybe in Vienna in 1961, he said, we know you better than you know yourselves. And of course, we're rotating our national security apparatus every election cycle, at the top at least. And they aren't. They have, God love them, patriotic Russians who stay in there and work against us year after year, I suppose. And they've got them in the United States and there's nothing the Bureau can do about it. If you're a Russian here and you're in Washington, D.C., rubbing elbows, knowing all these people, and you go back to Moscow and sit down for a debriefing, and under our law, that's not espionage. Um, and you can get away with it. And the Bureau tells me there's 200 mobsters in the Washington area that ultimately report to the FSB uh, in one way or another, maybe through proxies. So they can... I know one guy I've been trying to get in touch with, and he was released. Remember in 2010, they released all these guys, the, the, there yeah. were four yep. KGB yep. guys who were in prison. Yep. And they traded them. Well, one of the guys before he left was released from prison. Um, the, the FSB, the Russian internal intelligence, put a picture of his house in Maryland, his kids going to school and said, if you go back and talk about any of this, they're all dead. Do you get it? And they were clandestine photography and he had to take it seriously. During the Cold War, we always worried, we always focused on NATO. And I was in units over there and we were prepared to defend the inner German border. And we would go up to the border and there'd be you know, friendly people up there. I remember one night we took a night road march up there with our tank battalion in the mid 1970s. And the Germans came out of their houses and they gave all of our tank crewmen schnapps and 
and patted them on the back. And we love you, you know, you're protecting us and everything. We had a wonderful sense of mission, but we always knew there was espionage. When the wall came down, it's 10 times worse now because you have Russian money that's all over London. It's over New York. It's all through America. And there's, the there's no, they don't cooperate on money laundering investigations, do they? No, they've got money everywhere. And there's no, there's no front lines to this war. And those are the wars we can't right. fight. By the way, I spent 10 years of my CIA career trying to figure out for the military what kind of armor a T-72 had. It made a big difference if they were coming through the full the gap of the T-72, whether, you know all about this, whether it was reactive armor. There was did you find out? In there. Yeah, we did. We got, we got, um, I remember one time was, I won't name the country. We, we were, we were going to drill the tank. We, we found one. We were going to drill it, core it. Another time I remember we were going to steal one of these T-72s and drive it across the border. And the station that was supposed to receive the tank just went nuts. So this will start World War III. So, I mean, that's, that was our focus on, and finding out what the T-72 was and getting manuals and, you know, SS 21s had to know all about that. Well, here's, um, here's the dilemma, Bob. And it, you know, it's an old dilemma. It is, you know, the, the, we always wanted to um, have detente or some relationship with the Soviets. And we still want the same thing with Putin. We don't want uh, a hostility. We don't want war in Europe. And yet we're dealing with a state that's con taking continuous actions against us. How do we, how do we handle in foreign policy the idea that we're talking across the table on how to you know, uh, limit nuclear arms and so forth. And then underneath the table, we're just kicking the shins out of each other back and forth, kicking and shoving. And, 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 and it's confusing because the American people don't understand it. The Russian people don't have to because they don't have a vote, but the American people don't understand it. And the Russians don't say that they believe in international law, but we do. Confusing, isn't it? You were we, we on are, the dark we side. Did, did you ever sense the dilemma? I, I, I more than sense the dilemma. When I was in Central Asia in Dushanbe, uh, we ended up sharing a space with the Russian embassy. And for the life of them, they couldn't figure out why we were there unless it was to undermine their influence in the yeah. Caucasus in, in Central Asia and ultimately bring down Russia. And these Russians, polite enough, but just looked at us as we were the enemy. And they're saying, what did you guys put an embassy here for? What possible purpose except to do us in? And I remember the, the, the division there, the Russian division, was getting overrun from Afghanistan along the border. And they were holding us responsible for that. I remember one day they cut off, beheaded 10 Russian soldiers on the Afghan border. And they sort of looked at us, well, you must know about these guys. You had to have known about this. You created the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. You're causing all these problems. Yeah, and we did. We absolutely did. We did. We did. So there, came back to bite us, too. There's truth on both sides. And yeah. I could never get across to the Russians. No, we're here to help. Yeah, well, yeah, we've heard that before. Thank you. In 1994, when I was doing these joint staff talks in Moscow, I remember the Russian general leaned across the table at me. And he said, how soon will your NATO ships be in our port of Riga? And I said, well, you know, uh, right now, Latvia is an independent country, so it's not your port anymore. He said, but the more often you ask that question, the sooner the NATO ships will be there. If we could somehow have gone inside at the time and defanged this, this apparatus that generates the adversary relationships, it would have been, it, it could have been a different world, but we never got a hold of it. I remember sitting with General Kavashnin, who was the, he'd been a division commander in Afghanistan. I remember he said, you know, if it weren't for the Stinger missiles, we would have succeeded. But with the Stinger missiles, we could no longer land on the tops of the mountains and and work our way down. And you did that. He says, but okay. He was happy. He was going to be, so you look at our tanks. So we had a field display in Bosnia with the Russian battalion there and the tanks, you know, the Russians have always spent outrageous sums by our view on their armor. 
their tanks have like their armored personnel carrier had heated ladders so that if it was snow and ice, the infantrymen could still get in up the ladder and the ice. I didn't know that. They had windshield wipers on each of the vision blocks, which you know we've never had. They they're they're hermetically sealed so they can run through a chemical, biological, radiological environment, and the people inside are supposedly safe. They have tanks that squat so that they sit lower so you, they're harder to see and, and target. And a lot of things that we looked at and said, oh, no, we can't afford that. That's gold plating. So we couldn't get away with it. They did it. Kamarshneen was a breath of fresh air. And then he got back into Moscow. And um, this was the late 1990s. Yevgeny Primakov, a man whom I'm sure you met and know well, was in charge. And suddenly, there was no more camaraderie. There was no more like, in our army, we do it this way. How do you do it? And suddenly, it was back to the Cold War. It was astonishing how the intelligence system put its grip on the Russian military in the late 90s. They wanted to be with us. They always admired us. The Russian military did. They were rivals. Oh, yes, I... They admired us. But the same thing, you know, with the Chinese. The Chinese, in the, the Chinese military, in the, in the aughts, they were like, we would like to be like you Americans. We would like your kinds of ships and technology and stuff. We would like to be as good as you are. They study us. But the politics behind it, driven by the Communist Party in China or what remains of the GRU and its whatever ideology motivates it other than greed and power and fear, we don't know, but um, they have ironclad control on, on these militaries. Yeah, they did. It would change fast. I mean, I, it, when I was in Central Asia, they let me, they let me drive a T-72 and I didn't know how to drive a tank, but they taught me uh, in maneuvers or, yeah. or jump, or jump with the special forces on oh. the Afghan border. Yeah. And they yep. thought the greatest thing in the world was they'd let me jump first. Sure. And what am I, I said, well, where's the wind dummy? And, and they looked at me and oh, said, well, you're the wind dummy, idiot. There's always but, that with the Russians. You know, they're happy to drink with you, provided you drink the most, and they can shove you down the stairs. But, uh, but it is, it has changed. So, I mean, what's your, what's your prescription, if any, for how to handle the, the Russians' money? What should we be doing? Do we need to do we need to cut off all things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? Do we need to refuse to deal with banks in Moscow if they won't cooperate on on anti money laundering? Cut them out of the SWIFT system. What what can we do to preserve our own democracy and our values? You know, let me go back because this fascinates me is in the 80s, there was billions and billions of dollars of Communist Party money that, that disappeared right. uh, by 91. Yep. And the three guys that knew where it was coincidentally all went out the window. And that was the end of them. And we don't know where that money is. So unless you can, you can track money somewhere and the origin of it and it's clean, Otherwise, you're becoming a, a money laundering center. I don't know much about Wall Street and a lot of these hedge funds, but people that do just tell me that all of these places were floated by Russian money in the 90s. Huge. You know, Bank of New York, of course, is the famous one, but there, there are a bunch of other ones. There's just... There's well, there's Oleg Deripaska and Rusal in Kentucky. Exactly. And, 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 and so it's in Senator McConnell's interest to... Have Moscow, that Russell yeah. investment, you know, and he was taken off the sanctions list and they rearranged the ownership of the company just so it could come into Kentucky. Last question, Taiwan. I keep hearing from people that we're really worried about Chinese action against Taiwan. Should we be worried? And if so, what can we do? I don't think we're ready to go to war with China. And I think Taiwan's days are numbered. Um, and I say that not based on any sort of inside view of Chinese leadership, but as we were talking about just how nationalistic they are, and they believe that Taiwan belongs to China, was stolen, uh, is an American creation. And when countries as xenophobic as China, um, 
I think the chances are about even they're going to react. And, 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 you know, do we go to war or, you know, do they just take all the South China Sea? You know, what do we do about it? Um, this whole, you know, this whole, you know, sort of the American century turned out to be about 20, 30 years. And that was it. And now we are in serious, serious competition. Um, you know, I hate to use the, you know, sort of like going into World War One, you know, you know, well, gun, I, is, is no, it the guns of August? I don't know. Here we are. We're at the end of a, our conversation. And I thank our listeners and viewers for staying with us during this period. Um, and we don't want to end this on a down note. Look, the United States, our system, our belief in individual freedom and liberty, we've done more for mankind and with each other than probably any other country in, in the history. But each generation has to work and solve new problems. An ambassador of a Middle Eastern country told me in Washington last year, he said, you Americans don't approve of us. Let me remind you, there's another model out there, and that is China. It's true. And just as most of us have studied the evolution of plants and the animal kingdom, and we worry about what happened to the woolly mammoth or dinosaurs for our grandkids, if you look at societies, they have to adapt and they have to move forward. And if they don't, they will be replaced. It's happened to every great power in human history. And the United States is not immune. So we have to look at the world we're in. We have to adapt to this. And so for our listeners and viewers, I want to thank you again for being with us. Bob and I have tried to share our views, some experiences, some things you need to think about to help move America forward. Thank you. This has been Global Beacon with General Wesley Clark. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a like and a rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.